Election night 2017, as most of the nation was busy tracking races for governor in Virginia and New Jersey, those with an interest in school choice turned their attention to Douglas County, Colorado, where, in a deeply divisive contest, a slate of school board candidates backed by the local teachers union won in a landslide, despite the fact that the county leans Republican by a two-to-one margin. The clearest consequence is that the school board is now certain to drop its legal defense of the district school voucher program, in the process eliminating the prospect of a Supreme Court decision that might have clarified the status of school vouchers nationwide. But was the Douglas County election really a rejection of school choice? Or was it a reminder that all politics is local, perhaps school board politics most of all? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Max Eden, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of two articles for Education Next, one previewing and then another reflecting on the recent election in Douglas County. Max, welcome back to the Ednex podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Marty. So there's a lot we could discuss. Let's start out with the legal implications, which I think help to explain the intense outside interest in this contest. You write that the election results do constitute a major setback for school choice. Why is that the case? Uh, so back in 2011, when the Republican-backed school board uh, took part, or back in 2009, when the Republican-backed school board took party, one of their first orders of business was to try to launch the country's first district-based voucher program. Uh, Colorado had previously tried to launch a statewide voucher program that was struck down by the courts on the ground that this is a local control state, and so anything of this would have to be done at the district level. Uh, so the district said, okay, we would like to do this, and we're immediately challenged in court by the ACLU et al. Uh, on the grounds of the Blaine Amendment, which were uh, Colorado is one of 38 states that have Blaine Amendments on the state constitution. They were passed in the late 1800s amidst a kind of swelling tide of anti-Catholic animus because uh, the good Protestant folks didn't want money going to Catholic schools. And 125 years later, these uh, amendments pose a profound legal challenge to school choice uh, in all those states. It creates some legal uncertainty, often kind of prevents the effort from even going. Uh, and so this case had been in litigation for six years, and it seemed as though it was just going to be on the brink uh, of a major breakthrough that could have been a big strike against Blaine Amendments. But unfortunately, that's not quite how it shook out. It was put on the brink of that breakthrough by what the Supreme Court did this summer in the Trinity Lutheran case. Can you lay that out for us briefly? Yeah, so the Trinity Lutheran case uh, was kind of similar in, in substance but not quite in scope to, to these voucher cases. Uh, there was a state program in Missouri that offered state subsidies for tire, for, uh, tire bits that could go into helping refurbish playgrounds to make kids uh, less likely to break a bone when they fall down. And uh, Missouri said to Trinity Lutheran Church, no, we can't give this to you because this plain amendment says that we can't provide uh, financial support to a religious institution, and Trinity Lutheran said, we don't think that's the case. That went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court held uh, that is not, in fact, the case. The state can provide that kind of support to a religious institution uh, on the grounds, to, to roughly paraphrase Gorsuch, a, a skinned knee knows no denomination. Uh, but the court was unwilling to go that much further than that. They were explicitly unwilling to say that this would uh, apply more broadly, not enough no intimation within the text itself that it could necessarily prejudice a case uh, related to school vouchers, but 
after the Douglas County case made its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, the Supreme Court granted it, uh, heard it, and then vacated and granted certiorari back to the Colorado State Supreme Court and said, uh, look at this with Trinity Lutheran in mind. So a lot of observers thought that uh, even though the Trinity Lutheran case didn't provide a full precedent for it, it was uh, certainly a nudge that the U.S. Supreme Court was giving to the Colorado Supreme Court to say, uh, let's expand this logic to a broader realm and see what happens. And school choice advocates were quite optimistic uh, that when they, when that logic was expanded to a broader realm, uh, the ju- judiciary would hold similarly uh, that just as uh, Scrapes Knee knows no denomination, perhaps uh, funding that can go to any particular religious denomination doesn't quite know a denomination either and doesn't represent a conflict with, uh, with the First Amendment. In fact, maybe uh, implications of the First Amendment mean that blatant amendments in all 38 states might be unconstitutional. So the possibility for a Supreme Court opinion on that matter now seems very far-fetched. The incoming school board slate seems certain. They certainly committed over the course of the campaign to dropping that case. But you ultimately argue that this election outcome actually was not about school choice, at least in terms of what considerations were foremost in voters' minds in Douglas County. You spent some time out there reporting on the election for us on behalf of Education Next, how did you come to that conclusion? And if it wasn't about school choice, what was it about? Yeah, I mean, so this uh, the school choice case was was nothing new in the political scene. I mean, uh, voters knew it was launched and already in court during the 2011 election, which was another landslide for the Republican-backed board. It was still in play for 2013, where the Republicans also won by a convincing margin. Republican-backed candidates won by a convincing margin. Uh, And then they lost by an overwhelming margin in 2015 and then by an overwhelming margin in 2017. And throughout this this arc, nothing fundamental uh, changed with respect to school vouchers. The program was never implemented. It was vaguely in court. It was at most a hypothetical consideration on the minds of the most committed activists. But it wasn't something uh, that could create this kind of swell of uh, political change within the district. Well, what did that, I argue, and um, I think was almost pretty clear by, by the fact that the incumbents who were running weren't really the incumbents. Uh, they were candidates running backed by the same people who used to back the incumbents, but not the incumbents proper. Uh, what drove the change was that the reform policies implemented by the former superintendent, Liz Fagan, and backed by the former board, uh, really alienated a lot of teachers, created a lot of morale problems, caused uh, student learning gains to diminish, uh, and really kind of drove the, the district into uh, political furor over the sense that uh, these reforms that are being implemented for the top down really crashed and burned and were hurting the schools proper. Uh, so, And you argue that those reforms that the former superintendent backed really were a local manifestation of the national education reform agenda, at least as it was pursued by the Obama administration through Race to the Top and, and the waiver program. Can you make that case for us? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the tenets, the basic tenets were the same. The difference between what was being pushed nationally and what was being pushed locally uh, was a question primarily of, of kind of scope and, uh, and the aggressiveness with which it was implemented, right? The key constituent components are uh, higher standards, curriculum that's aligned to those higher standards, 
teacher evaluation that's also aligned to those standards and the test results of those standards and a merit pay system that ties it all together. Uh, these were kind of the, the key components of the bipartisan education consensus that we saw both the Obama Department of Education uh, encourage or incentivize or coerce states into adopting, and also what the Republican-backed school board, when they got into office and they thought to themselves, we want to do reform, uh, that was what reform was, and so that's what they did. They brought in a hard-charging superintendent to whom uh, the common core was the common floor, and we would need to go above that with a district-designed, guaranteed, and viable curriculum that are aligned to world-class outcomes. Uh, the Colorado teacher evaluation system, which was regarded kind of across the country as a model state law, was also too low. So she would design her own uh, CITE, Continuous Improvement for Teaching Effectiveness Framework, and this would all be tied together by a merit pay system. And uh, a problem with this, this is something Rick Hess and I went out and kind of investigated on the ground back in 2013, uh, I think before it was quite clear what was going to happen with these reforms, one of the teachers articulated to us, like, we know that these policies were designed for failing urban schools, and quite frankly, we think it's an affront uh, that they're being pushed on us so aggressively. And I think that uh, the results that we saw within the district, morale sinking from 80% of teachers thinking that the district was heading in the right direction uh, back in 2009 to 14% in 2012-2013 to 6% in 2014-2015, uh, really show that this, this mix of policies was a, a very poor fit for Douglas County. As you mentioned just now, this was not your first visit to, or at least your first look at Douglas County, that back in 2013 you co-authored this report called The Most Interesting School District in America, question mark. And if I recall, that report offered a fairly positive or at least sympathetic take on what the district was trying to do. Looking back on it, what, if anything, do you think you got wrong? Um, I think that, um, what did we get wrong? I think that we might have given uh, too much of a benefit of the doubt to, to novelty. We were quite struck by the fact that this was a suburban district that was implementing reforms, and they were implementing reforms that aren't typically associated with it, uh, which to, to me certainly made it very interesting. Uh, but interesting is a word that can have several connotations, right? There's the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Uh, and I think that uh, perhaps a mistake that I made in judgment at the time, and I think is quite frankly a, a mistake a lot of education reformers make a lot of the time, uh, is to look at something that's interesting and to uh, slightly prejudice yourself to thinking, oh, well, if it's interesting and bold, uh, it must be at least somewhat promising or somewhat good. Uh, and so I think that, you know, we may have given it too much of the benefit of the doubt then. I also think that it took more time than that to, to really unravel. The teacher survey results only got worse from there. The teacher turnover only got worse from there. I think we started to see it at the, the tipping point of when it went from uh, maybe this could work to this is starting to crash. Uh, and I think that that's part of the reason why back in 2013, despite murmurings of discontent, the Republican-backed school board still won by a reasonably convincing margin. But uh, as time went on, as the logic played out, I think that uh, became clear that interesting was not quite as a positive a connotation as uh, we might have been inclined to think. 
Now, one of the other ways in which you argue that the recent election results shouldn't be interpreted as a rejection of school choice uh, is by looking at the way in which the candidates talked about charter schools, which, as, a, as I understand it, have a substantial presence in, in Douglas County. And uh, you also note that the Douglas County election took place alongside an election in uh, Denver, where uh, charter schools were, were quite controversial, and conclude that taken together, these races should scramble the political narrative about charter schooling. Can you walk us through your, your logic there? First, how, if at all, did charters manifest in the Douglas County election, and what do we learn from looking at Denver alongside? Yeah, so as I, as I was doing interviews to try to, you know, sort through the sort through the past, sort through the kind of political sparks and get down to what's really at stake in this election, uh, I talked to a few charter supporters who ex expressed some anxiety uh, that when the candidates who were backed by the AFT to the tune of more than half a million dollars got into the office, maybe it wouldn't be so good to charter schools, which <laughs> is a, a reasonable assumption, but something that when I looked into, can I write that this is the case, I found that there was actually absolutely nothing uh, in the statements of the AFT-backed candidates to support that. If anything, uh, they were vociferously in support of charter schools. I adamantly support all types of public school choice using public dollars, said one of the candidates uh, at a candidate's forum. And the kind of rhetoric that we come to expect from the, the pro-school choice right at conferences kind of talking amongst ourselves was very much the rhetoric that we heard from the school board members uh, who are backed by the union, which is, you know, perhaps somewhat unusual, but it's worth noting that Douglas County uh, is a very unusual district insofar as it's a suburban district. It's the richest district per capita that doesn't orbit the D.C. Beltway. Uh, it's two to one Republican, and it's 20% charter penetration. The it was a rapidly expanding county, and so the value proposition to charters in an expanding uh, school system was it's it's cheaper than the district, and it's actually a financial win-win. So it was very much built into the DNA of the school district, and even if the suspicions of the charter supporters at Douglas County uh, might be somewhat justified uh, abstractly, there's the political reality that a move against charters is a move against 20% of the students uh, who go to Douglas County schools and a move that goes against uh, a kind of pro-market way of thinking that Douglas County residents overwhelmingly support. Uh, you contrast that with what we saw in Denver, where we saw you know, somewhat of a split decision between pro and anti-charter folks. Uh, but the anti-charter folks were explicitly anti-charter, would directly tie uh, the candidates to Betsy DeVos and to Trump uh, and make kind of the, the arguments that we would expect from the NAACP and other charter skeptics against charter schools. And so uh, I think this scrambles the political narrative for two reasons. One is that we, we typically assume that charters are an urban phenomenon and that suburban districts don't really want them, don't really need them. The Credo study says maybe they're not necessarily good for them. Um, and so we kind of assume that this is something that's for one segment of the population in one kind of demographic region and not for another. Uh, but what I think Douglas County says to, to, the broader, uh, to the broader movement is actually if you give suburban parents something and they embrace it, uh, they're going to keep to it. And if you give 
Republicans, <laughs> a Republican voter base, something that they agree with, it's probably going to find even firmer soil uh, than in a heavily Democratic district where those kind of appeals to uh, cost control, to market pressure, to innovation and flexibility uh, might not like hit ideologically home so much with them. So I think you've made a good case that listeners will find convincing that this election didn't turn on the issue of the school voucher program. Uh, we started by noting that it has clear implications for the legal status of voucher programs nationally, but I might argue that even those implications might be a little bit exaggerated. Uh, we know that some state courts in Ohio and Wisconsin, for example, have interpreted Blaine amendments as allowing voucher programs as really barring nothing more than what the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution uh, prohibits. Maybe you don't have to go that far, but what, if it wasn't about school vouchers, what ultimately are the lessons of the Douglas County election for proponents of school choice? Um, I think one of the lessons, I think there are probably, I would, first off, I would agree with your, with your assessment. I mean, uh, it's, it's clearly posed a hurdle, posed uncertainties, has given school choice proponents things that they need to work around, and there's a sort of counterfactual as to how much better could things be if this wasn't there. We can't quite know that, but they have, there have been workarounds, there have been judicial uh, pretzel twists that have gone to, to mitigate their importance. But Well, and on the other side, uh, opponents of school voucher programs have found plenty of other constitutional language to try to hang their uh, attacks on voucher programs on, right? And so yeah, no. it's not just the Blaine Amendment. Be this quite certainly sure. wouldn't end the legal fight over private school choice. Yeah, no, the Institute for Justice's Tim Keller will usually put on some, some Mickey Mouse hats and, and call call out the anti-school choice folks on playing Mickey Mouse constitutional games with every hook and crook that they can. So so I think you're right. Um, while the, the, the national focus was on this constitutional question, which we will not get resolved, it's perhaps... Uh, and. By virtue of it not being resolved, it's not quite the most important takeaway moving forward for the school choice movement. Uh, I think there are two takeaways from it. One is that um, I think school choice had kind of hitched its star to the broader education reform movement, which was a combination of giving parents the power to pick their schools and educators more flexibility and trying to uh, re-engineer district systems to give them higher standards and hopefully better personnel management systems. Uh, and these two things, which are in some philosophical tension insofar as one is a question of uh, how do bureaucrats rationally re-administer a program for more effectiveness, and one is how can we inject more freedom into the system. Uh, it was the combination of these two, like, these two things in Douglas County that brought choice down, because the... Parents, uh, the teachers, were rebelling against the former but not the latter. They felt as though the, district, the reforms that were being pushed didn't fit, were alienating, hurt their students, and so choice became a casualty with it. And I think moving forward, uh, school choice proponents will need to reevaluate to what extent do you want to uh, hitch your star to this wagon anymore. And the other is it should give school choice proponents uh, some cause to take a second look at suburban and rural districts. I think... Uh, it's kind of been systematically thought by advocates to be not quite what school choice was about, because school choice was uh, supposed to be a means to an end to fix failing schools, uh, 
not so necessary when places where schools are good, where parents might be somewhat defensive about the traditional public school system to a greater degree. Uh, but I think that just as we saw in New York City, where the district-based reforms got rolled back by de Blasio, but when de Blasio went after charters, we saw tens of thousands of charter parents marching at Albany to tell Cuomo to, uh, to protect their interests, and in fact he did. I think we saw the exact same thing in Douglas County, which proves a, a pretty basic political science maxim that if you give people something, uh, they will want to protect it which I think is something that school choice advocates have had a blind spot to when it comes to not urban districts. My guest today has been Max Eden, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. You can find his article previewing the Douglas County School Board elections, along with his post-election reflections, at educationnext.org. Max, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks so much, Marty. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the 100 episodes we've recorded since we launched in 2015. Talk to you next week.